And so we come to our final session today, Inside Out, and uh, session number five, the Holy Spirit and spiritual gifts. Intentionally, I've wanted to leave this to the last session. I think it's been vital to have laid the platform, the foundation that we have over the previous four weeks. And my um, urging to you, if you're listening to this on the, on the tape and it's the first one you've come to, is press the stop button now and go back and listen to the other four, please. Um, just to the Spirit's role throughout biblical theology, to the Spirit's role in salvation, to see how close to the New Testament writers, particularly Paul, was the Spirit to salvation. I mean, Christ is the centre. Christ is Paul's centre. Uh, salvation is in Christ but the spirit has a massive role because of our Trinitarian framework in, in drawing us into the experienced realities of God's salvation so we looked at the Trinitarian framework that is vital to have we've looked also in the last two weeks at the eschatological framework people say oh don't use poncy long words but um, we use long words in other contexts and it's not a particularly difficult word to get your head around it just means the end times and we've looked at how the spirit has brought the future into the present the first fruits of the deposit so that we can live now the lives of the future and i was personally i was thrilled to hear so i don't know whether you wondered whether jez barnes um, who spoke on the weekend and i were in cahoots but I was just thrilled with the way what he was bringing out of the letter of the Ephesians kind of complemented what we've been talking about in terms of the now, not yet, and everything working towards this future. And it's the Spirit who helps us to live towards that future so that we can be anchored now. Um, one little illustration just on that while I think about it. Um, last summer we were on holiday in Cornwall. We saw the um, Padstow lifeboat, or not the Padstow, the um, Mother Ivy's lifeboat in North Cornwall launch out and we were at the we were by the uh, lifeboat um, what do you call it house station thank you the lifeboat station um, uh, as it was launched out and I thought now this would be interesting it, was, it just went out for a little trial little you know poodle but it was quite choppy seas quite a big swell and I thought this is going to be really interesting how I've never seen how they actually get the, the lifeboat back onto the slipway and the slipway is a very sort of carefully defined uh, ramp with a notch for the for the keel of the boat to fit in, and here's this boat pitching about. How on earth are they going to reverse the boat back right into the exact place on the ramp so they can winch it up? So we watched as it came in, and as it came in, it kind of it kind of manoeuvred itself so it was about 20 yards off the ramp and kind of you know being pitched around by the by the waves, and lots of guys at the front, all the all the crew, and they had various ropes. And what they did was they went over to one boy, um, just out at sort of two o'clock, which had an eye, a ring at the top. And they got over and with a, with a sort of rod, they threaded the rope through the eye and pulled it back. Then the boat goes over to a boy at 10 o'clock and does the same thing. So that now the boat is anchored at 10 o'clock and at two o'clock by two ropes. And then two men on each rope, they just pull and between them, they secure the nose of the, the bow of the boat. So then all, the, all the, the, the pilot has to do, knowing that the front is secured, is just gently reverse back in using his rudder until it, he can line up, with the, line up with the thing and then they winch him up. I thought that's quite an interesting illustration, being secured that way and secured that way, you can cope with all the storms and the tossing of the sea right here secured in the past by what Christ has done, 
and secured, if you like, or guaranteed the future by the invasion into our lives now of the spirits. We, we we're free from the past and secured in that sense with what Christ has done. And we're secured, if you like, for the future because the future end time spirit has come into our lives now. So secured in those two, we can live even amid life's trials and storms, pitched and tossed about by the waves. We're secured. So the question is, how do we live now as spirit-filled Christians? People who are seeking to go on being filled with the spirit. And I want to base much of what I want to say, maybe actually everything, with bar one or two cross-references. In Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, it might help to have that um, open. Uh, page 1080, 1 Corinthians 1. Uh, we'll be looking and I'll be reading a bit from... 1 Corinthians 12, and we'll work from there in a little while. How do we live? I was reading Clive Woodward's um, autobiography on the, he used to um, be the England coach and coached the England rugby team to the 1993 World Cup. And he's written a book, I think it's called Winning, um, quite a big book, which is a sort of diary and autobiography of his coaching the England team. It was fascinating. Um, Here was a guy, I mean, he's obsessed, almost, I mean, pathologically so he's obsessed with detail getting every single thing right it was an extraordinary read the preparation to a world cup winning team and one of the things that he had was a a, basically a sort of rule book they they would have regular team meetings the the england rugby team spent almost as much time in a seminar room as they did on a training pitch they would have endless meetings to discuss what it is to be team england and they drew up these rules and, and they would amass over the, over the seasons leading up to the World Cup. It, it grew to about 100 pages of discussions and input and questions. And every single issue raised, every single question asked, it was always asked against the backdrop, how does this benefit the team? How will this benefit? If it doesn't benefit the team, chuck it. But if there's a new idea, there's a new way of training, a new piece of kit... One example was when um, one of the forwards was getting impeded because opposition would often grab his jersey. And it was out, well, what can we do? And out of a brainstorm, they said, well, why don't we wear the Lycra things, the the, the tight-fitting things? And just before the World Cup, they piloted it. And England were the first team to use those really tight, um, sort of skin-tight Lycra shorts. Everyone else copied the idea. But it meant that in a scrum or a ruck, you couldn't grab hold of your opponent and gain an advantage. It was difficult to grab hold of. Now, that, that sort of came out of all these, all these discussions. But there was a, a rule book. Um, and as the rule book grew, pages and pages, it was given to new um, squad members. And they were told, you, you can't go away and read that. Don't come back until you've read it. You need to know what it is to be part of team. I don't care how good you are. I don't care, you know, you sort of Johnny on the block. It doesn't matter. You read that and don't come back to us until you've read what it is to be Team England. The message that comes over through those pages is respect the team. Respect the team. You may be a gifted individual, but respect the team. Now that is manifestly what is not happening in 1 Corinthians. Let's look at, I want to look at the, the section that is headed uh, concerning spiritual gifts in a minute, but let's look at the, the context, context to the letters of the Corinthians. Um, chapter 1 and verse 4, after the initial greetings, Thanksgiving is headed 
in the NIV. I always thank my God for you because of his grace given you in Jesus, in Christ Jesus. For in him you've been enriched in every way, with all kinds of speech and with all knowledge. God thus confirming our testimony about Christ among you. Therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He will also keep you firm to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, who has called you into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Fantastic. This Corinthian church, amazing. Wonderful thing for Paul to write. Look at this. Just uh, They've been enriched, do you see, um, in, uh, in verse 5. You've been enriched in every way, with all kinds of speech and with all knowledge. God thus confirming our testimony about Christ among you. And therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. Just turn over to page um, 4, uh, sorry, chapter 4. And verse 8, when we read this at face value, it sort of backs up what Paul seems to be saying in chapter 1, verse 8 of chapter 4. Already you have all you want. Already you've become rich. You've begun to reign. And that without us. Look at verse 10. We are fools, Paul talking about, he and his companions. We are fools for Christ, but you are so wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are honoured. We are dishonoured. So you look at that and think, well, the Corinthian church have arrived. They've arrived. They've got everything. All kinds of speech. And you'll know now, because of what we know from Corinthians, that's not just wise words, sort of words of wisdom, but it's ecstatic speech. It's tongues speech, the speech of angels, if you like. They've got all knowledge. And they don't lack any spiritual gift. And you're waiting for the but, aren't you? And you know there's a but. Let's look at verse 10 of chapter 1. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this, one of you says, I follow Paul, another, I follow Apollos, another, I follow Kephas, still another, I follow Christ, (laughs) trumped the lot of you. (laughs) One-upmanship, self-preferment, self-enhancement, no, I've got the next wisest word, I'm, no, 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 quarrels and division. And we see that marked out, I put the references on the the, the text there, just uh, on the sheet there, chapter 3 in verse 3. You're still worldly, he chides them now. For since there's jealousy and quarrelling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere human beings? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not mere human beings? You're missing the plot. He's wanting to say to the Corinthians, look again at those words I read, verse 4 and, uh, sorry, chapter 4 and verse 8. Do you notice the exclamation marks? I think we're meant, I'm sure we're meant to read those sarcastically. Already you have all you want. Already you've become rich. You've begun to reign. And that without us. Look at this bit. How I wish that you really had begun to reign so that we also might reign with you. For it seems to me that God has put us as apostles on display at the end of the procession like those condemned to die in the arena. We'd be made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as to human beings. In other words, we're suffering here and it's in our sufferings that Christ's power is being made manifest. As he says in the second letter of the Corinthians, oh, but not you. I mean, we're fools for Christ, verse 10, but you, you're so wise. And I could go on. So despite the protestations of the Corinthians, 
that you know they've they've somehow arrived with with a kind of mega church. We have all this wisdom, all this knowledge. Paul is saying, but but look at you. You're riven with division and quarrelling. Now, why is this scenario here in Corinth, in Corinth? What's gone on? And to use our newfound long word language, they simply have an over-realized eschatology. Some of the Corinthians, it's clear, and we infer this from the, Paul's response to them, if you like, in this letter. Some of the Corinthians clearly feel that heaven has already arrived. In a sense, this, this is heaven on earth. Christ's death and his resurrection and the outpouring of the Spirit means, you know, here we are. We're in a, a new heaven. And so the issues, uh, I'm not going to go into them now, but for example on, on marriage in chapter 7, Paul needs to address that because um, they know of Christ's teaching that, 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 that there's no, no one will be given to marriage in heaven. There is no marriage. And uh, the issue is immorality that's rife amongst the church in Corinth because they're beginning to teach one another, well, don't get married because this is heaven, there's no marriage. But here are these guys living in the not yet, burning with sexual feelings and lust. And so inevitably it spills out into immorality because there's a sense of denial about the not yet amid the already. Or at chapter 15, Paul talks about the resurrection of the body. Some of them are teaching that there is no resurrection of the body. What? How can that be? Well, it's because, I'd want to argue, that they, many of them, in their public meetings, have been speaking in the tongues of angels. Hey, hey, this new uh, supernatural language. Listen to us. We must be in heaven now. Now, hang on. If we're in heaven now, but I haven't died, then... There's clearly no resurrection, no, no new life from death. This is it now. I'm allowing my experience to drive my theology. And Paul says, no, 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 you bozos. If there's no resurrection, then Christ didn't rise. And if Christ didn't rise, where does that leave us all? So 1 Corinthians is basically, from about chapter 5 onwards, is a bit of a telling off. He's addressing various issues. You, again, just look at the way different sections begin. Um, uh, where do we go? Yeah, verse, uh, chapter 8. Now, about food sacrificed to idols. And they've obviously been in touch with him. And he, they've got various sort of issues. You know, what do we do about this? What about that? So he's addressing that issue. Um, and again, uh, uh, well, in the section we're going to come on to, chapter 12. Now about the gifts of the Spirit. Brothers and sisters, I do not want you to be uninformed. So the Corinthian, particularly 1 Corinthians, uh, and, and the whole sort of uh, Corinthian corpus, Paul's letters to the Corinthians, are a response to what's going on. And in 1 Corinthians, from about chapter 5 onwards, it's a bit of a telling off. It's a rebuke. Guys, you've overstepped the mark. You, you're, you're misinterpreting what's going on here you have an over-realized eschatology. And I guess what drives what I want to come on to now, if that's the context, coming on to this section, and chapters 12, 13, and 14 are clearly all one section, I want to look at what it is that particularly drives his response here, and to look at his response. What does Paul say, and what does he teach? And uh, particularly for us, what does he teach about um, spiritual gifts? I think the presenting issue in chapters 
12 through 14 is the issue of speech in particular. He's, he's marked that in chapter 1. You have all kinds of speech. Uh, but it is specifically, I think, tongues speech. Speaking and praying and singing in tongues. And the Corinthian claim is that, look, we have this heavenly language, this spirit-inspired language. So Paul, you know, don't you go telling us what to do or who we are. We've kind of arrived. But Paul is, um, he's concerned about the divisions in them. Look at chapter 11, verse 18. Um, or from 17, look. In the following directives, I have no praise for you. For your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And to some extent, I believe it. I can well believe it's true. Paul needs to get to the Corinthians in such a way that he can correct them, rebuke them if you like, and correct them, without in any way undermining the role of the Spirit, or indeed the gifts of the Spirit. So what he does is uh, he, let's just work backwards, from chapter 14, he addresses the issue of tongue speech set against prophecy within the corporate setting, when they gather together as church. He has a lot to say in the second half of chapter 12 and chapter 13 on the part the body plays and the respect that individual believers need to hold one to another. And in chapter 12, the first half of it, he talks about spiritual gifts. It's important to recognise that when he comes down on the Corinthians for their, their excessive or inappropriate tongues speech, he's not anti speaking in tongues per se. Let's just just look at one or two references there. Um, chapter 14, verse 5. I'd like every one of you to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. Those who prophesy are greater than those who speak in tongues unless they interpret so that the church may be edified. But I'd like every one of you to speak in tongues. So look at verse 13. For this reason, those who speak in a tongue, and then he goes on with some instructions, but clearly... The inference there is that people will speak and use the gift of tongues. Um, He says in verse 18, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. But he goes on to say how in the church, in this particular context, he'd love a few sensible words put in more than babbling away in tongues. So he's not against tongues per se, it's just it needs to be put into the right context and priority. Why? Why? Because in Corinth, at this time, there's not enough respect for the team. They're not playing as a team. They're a bunch of individuals all trying to outshine each other with what they can do with the ball. And Paul's message is, respect the team. Respect the team. But having said that, the answer to, as I put on the notes here, the answer to abuse is not no use its right use. The answer to abuse of a gift or of a particular outworking of the spirit is not no use, but right use. I'll give you an, uh, an example of what I mean and just to return to my well-worn uh, analogy of our dog Connie in Richmond. When we take Connie to Richmond Park, she comes alive. Now, she's alive right now, but probably sleeping somewhere. When she's in Richmond, she comes fully alive. 
But here's the thing, and we love that. I love seeing Connie alive. She's, she's being real dog, true dog, just doggy dog. What, you know, her creator designed her to be. But when she was a puppy, when she was young and immature, actually we had one or two nightmares, one or two near disasters in Richmond because she was so excited, so full of just energy and fun. She'd leap off and bound off anywhere. And as you know, there are deer in Richmond Park and she's not to chase off after the deer. And we had one or two um, sort of close calls when, you know, she was tearing headlong into a you know, little foal or baby deer or whatever they're called. And we had to, we had to run after her, sort of grab her back and, and discipline her. And for a while, there was a time when we took Connie, full of dogginess, full of the joys of Richmond Park, and we had to keep her on a lead in order to train her, in order to discipline her, that she can't just run across the road when there are cyclists and cars, and she can't just chase after the deer. There's plenty of space for her and the deer, and she needs to learn to coexist within the whole of Richmond Park. And so we had to train her. We had to train her when we weren't in Richmond to to walk to heel or to come to us when we called her to come. Now, all the while that we were disciplining her, restraining her freedom, it wasn't so that she could never be free in Richmond or never go to Richmond again. We kept taking her to Richmond because we wanted to get to the stage when she was mature enough to be able to enjoy Richmond fully and allow everyone else to enjoy Richmond too. Do you get the analogy with the Corinthians? They're, they're young. They're immature. They're, they're, they're giddy with this experience of the Spirit. And Paul is having to put them on the lead. Not forever, though. They're not forever to be on the lead. Paul, I'm sure, would long for the day when he can take them off the lead again and know that he can trust the Corinthians to use this life of the Spirit and the gifts that the Spirit endows them with responsibly and in a mature manner so that... They respect the team. Or to chime it in with the teaching on the weekend. So that the body is built up and this rainbow people of God is seen by everyone to be the sneak preview of what's coming. The coming soon people. Oh, that looks good. But at the moment it looks awful. There's quarrelling, divisions, backbiting, everyone trying to out-trump everyone else with their wisdom. And so Paul has to put the lead on. Walk to heal. But it isn't, I want to suggest, it's clear from the other New Testament epistles that he writes, it's clear that that's not a forever injunction or command. It's just temporary while the Corinthians grow up and mature. So what does he say? Chapter 12. I'm going to read these um, first 11 verses. And let's spend some time looking at this. Uh, let me just say, I want to speak about uh, on verses 1 to 11, and then um, we, uh, I've, if I have time, um, love maybe just to quickly run through that, that gift list from verses 8 to 10, um, but if not, it's a sheet that you can take away and, and just look at for yourself and study yourself as well. Um, and then I'd love us to do a little bit of a group work, if you like, based around two um, DVD clips that um, I'm going to show towards the end. So there's a little bit of variety. It's not just me or me. Now, let me read uh, verses 1 to 11 of chapter 12. Now, about the gifts of the Spirit, brothers and sisters, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, somehow or other, you were influenced and led astray to dumb idols. Therefore, I want you to know that no one who is speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus be cursed. And no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. There are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit distributes them. 
There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but in all of them, in everyone, it is the same God at work. Now, to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. To one, there is given through the Spirit a message of wisdom. To another, a message of knowledge by means of the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by that one Spirit. To another, miraculous powers. To another, prophecy. To another, distinguishing between Spirits. To another, speaking in different kinds of tongues. And to still another, the interpretation of tongues. All these are the work of one and the same Spirit. And he distributes them to each one just as he determines. Concerning spiritual gifts, says the heading of the NIV. And I think it's unfortunate. Because the word in the Greek in verse 1, uh, which is translated gifts of the spirit, is the word um, pneumatikos, from which we get pneumatic power, pneumatic drill. Um, so it's a, a power word, um, but it's, it's in the, in the sort of New Testament letters, it's another word for the spirit. But um, if we're going to translate it literally, that word, it ought to just say, we ought to translate it now about spirituals. And there's quite a bit of controversy, quite a bit has been written about this one word, because the way in which it's declined, it's in the accusative plural. It's the object now about this it's the object of, of what Paul wants to say and it's um, in the plural but because of the ending in the Greek we can't be sure whether it's masculine or neuter and therefore we're not quite sure how to translate it really whether it's about spiritual things neuter and that's what this translation and to be fair most commentators go with now about spiritual gifts uh, those are things if you like or whether it's masculine now about spiritual literally men or we might say generically, people. As I say, most translations of the Bible come down on now about spiritual gifts because of what immediately comes up in um, verses 4 to 6. They say, well, there's the context. And often when you're not quite sure how to specifically translate a word, you look at the context and, and make the best guess from the context. And the immediate context, Paul is going on, they argue, to speak about gifts. But I want to argue that there's a bigger context within 12 to 14. Indeed, within the whole letter, it's about people. It's about the maturity of these individuals. It's about them living to respect the team for the common good. And therefore, I want to argue that the start of this section is clearly a new start now, about this next section. I want to talk about what a, a spiritual person looks like. And a spiritual person will, obviously, have different gifts. But they'll be part of a body and they'll recognise different parts in the body. And they will love chapter 13. And when it comes on to particular things, they'll understand and mature into correct use of prophecy in tongues. I want to argue that pneumatikos here is maybe better translated now about spiritual matters, if you like if we're going to sort of compromise. Or what should spiritual people look like? How should they act? How should they be? I don't want you to be ignorant or uninformed. Oh yeah, the Corinthians say, no, we know all about this, Paul. You don't need to, to write to us about um, spiritual matters, spiritual things, or what we should be like as spiritual people. Because actually, we, uh, we pray in tongues. Actually, and sing in tongues as well. Yeah, gavel away we do. And the services go on for years and years. Listen, everyone, all sat, we are so spiritual. 
And Paul says, listen, speaking in a different kind of tongue is, is nothing. It, it, sort of spiritual or ecstatic speech is nothing. They, they were riddled with cults in Corinth anyway. It's not um, peculiar or particular to the Christian faith. There were other religious um, religions in the ancient Near East at that time and in Greek times who spoke in different tongues, ecstatic speech. And actually what's more, under the influence of um, these other cults, if you like, they would go to dumb idols and worship them. And often, in worshipping other idols, the worshippers would curse Jesus. That's the reference here in in verse 3. I want you to know that no one who's speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus be cursed. You, You need to understand this. You need to get real about this. A spiritual person, a pneumaticos, would understand that. And they'd also understand that you could only say Jesus is Lord by the Spirit. That's, that's revelation. That's real wisdom that the Spirit imparts in us. And it's from that understanding that all the gifts and all the other manifestations flow. So you need to understand this first heading here, the proof of reality. The, the, the foundational work of the Spirit in a person's life is to enable them to see that Jesus is Lord. To be able to say that Jesus is Lord. Or, again, to tie it in with the teaching on the weekend and Paul's letter to the Ephesians, to recognise that I'm part of a people that is working towards perfect unity and purity and harmony, harmony, and that all things will be gathered together perfectly and harmoniously under one head, even Christ. And I recognise that. It's not that all things are gathering around the budget, or things economic, or things political. It's not like I look for a political power that will, that will form or gather or cohere all things, or geographical place or sphere. It's not how much money I have or where I live or the kind of things I do that will ultimately satisfy and define who I am because it is imperfect. It is discordant with what God is doing in Christ. And it takes the Spirit to enable an individual to recognize that such that they can say, this carpenter's son from Nazareth is Lord of the entire universe. That's a work of the Spirit. And that's what you should look for first. If you are pneumaticos, if you are spirit people, you will see that confession and recognition in others and look to embrace and welcome it. So first, the proof of reality. That the Spirit really is there. It's not necessarily through ecstatic tongue speech. It's through the confession that Jesus is Lord. Secondly, the priority of unity verses 4 to 6 see what Paul says and his point here is that God although he is diverse three persons is one and and he wants his church to mirror him he wants in his church for there to be diversity but unity And Paul makes this point right in the face of the divisions that are clearly appearing in the Corinthian church. Well, I'm an Apollos fan. Well, I'm a Paul fan. Well, I'm a Peter fan. Who cares? It's one Lord that has called you. 
So there are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit distributes them. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but in all of them and in everyone, everyone, it is the same God at work. Do you notice? Spirit, verse 4. Lord, verse 5. God, verse 6. The three persons of the Trinity. Paul is saying there's diversity, yet unity as he gives these different gifts. And that's what he wants mirrored in his church. Different gifts, different service, different workings, but the same source. So away with your divisions. Away with your disunity. Away with your quarrelling. Away with your jealousies. Why has that person got that kind of ability or gift? Why has so-and-so got that kind of profile? Why are they doing this or that in the church? Aren't I special too? Yes. Because if you have the Spirit and you can recognise Jesus as Lord, then you are, you are one in the same body, one in the same unit. You're on the same team. And Paul's message is, respect the team. Respect the team. Not everyone can be the scrum. Not everyone can be the three quarters. Or to change the analogy, in an orchestra... How would an orchestra have the beauty of sound that it does if everyone was playing the violin or the double bass or the percussion or the wind? You need all these different ones and the conductor has arrayed them and set them out exactly as he wants them so that he can conduct a perfect symphony. Look at how um, Paul talks again and affirms this unity in the Trinitarian God. Verse um, 11 All these are at the work of one and the same Spirit, and he distributes them. God does that, just as he determines. Or verse 18. In fact, God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. Verse 24, uh, second bit. But God has put the body together, giving greater honour to the parts that lacked it. And so on. Verse 28. And God has placed in the church, first of all, apostles, prophets, so on. God has done this. He appoints, he places, he chooses. And so we recognise that although we have diverse, different and unique gifts and abilities, we are called by the one God, empowered by the one Spirit. So the priority of unity in the body. And thirdly, the purpose of diversity Verses 7 through to 11. Look at verse 7. Now to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. There again is the diversity and the unity. To each one, every single one of us, a manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. Every single one of us. Look at verse 27, just to back that up. You are the body of Christ. This metaphor he's used of the one body but different parts. You are the body of Christ and each one of you is a part of it. Every single one of us has a part to play. Some, the part is obvious to the whole body. Others, it's less obvious, but no less vital. I was emailing someone today who was feeling a little bit... um, sort of troubled and and overwhelmed with the way in which this person volunteers in the church. They're not sure whether they're doing the best job. Um, Very few of the church know what this person does, I guarantee. 
but I was able to email back to this person and say, you know, if you didn't do what you currently do, this area of ministry within the church simply would not exist. It would not happen but for you. Most of you have got no idea who I'm talking about. <laughs> I'm not going to tell you. But there are, there are, everyone has a part to play and, and every part is vital. Diversity. And to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given. To each one of us. Interesting that, the manifestation, the, um, in verse 4, the different kinds of gifts, the word for gifts there is not pneumaticos, it's um, charismata. And I've talked about that before, the, the expression of grace. What the Corinthians needed to get in their minds, what we need to bear in mind, is this has got nothing to do with us. This, it's a gift. Charis means grace or gift. Charismata is just the overflow, or the outworking, the expression of a gift. It's, it's got nothing to do with us. It is the Lord by his spirit in us. We just have to be obedient to what he's given us and to work with whatever it is that the spirit has given to us. And that working will involve in some way an outworking a manifestation, as it's translated here in verse 7. We'd expect that, wouldn't we? If, as we saw in Romans last time we met, Romans chapter 8, if the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, in other words, took a dead corpse and made it into new life, if that same spirit is living in us, would we not expect from time to time that there'd be some kind of manifestation of power, something that goes beyond ourselves, a, a gracing of God, a gifting of God, an empowering of God that's obvious to some, in some way to the others. Not so that we go, whoo, look how amazing I am. But so that the body is built up. Verse 7, to each one, manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. For the common good. Look over chapter 14 and verse 12. When he's talking about gifts... Um, so it is with you, since you are eager for gifts of the Spirit, try to excel in those that build up the church. Respect the team. Respect the team. This is team church, if you like. Every single issue, every single question. How does this benefit the church? How does it grow Christ's body? How does it bless others? So we should expect and hunger for, be eager for, a manifestation of the Spirit, a manifestation of God's goodness to us, to, to pour out of us so that others are built up, others are encouraged, others are blessed. That's how it should work. Not to bite back at each other, to devour each other, to quarrel and be jealous and fall out. But to build one another up. That's why the unity and the diversity. I put on the notes, unity is not uniformity. We don't prescribe one size fitting all. Everyone's got to follow Apollos. Everyone's got to follow Paul. Everyone's got to do it this way or that way. God has made each of us different. Different parts of the body, eyes, ears, hands, feet... And they all have a part to play. And we recognise the part that they play in the body that God has called us to. 
And diversity is not division. We don't get jealous of others because we recognize that God has gifted or empowered X or Y or Z in that way. And he has empowered me in another. And we look to encourage one another and for others to encourage us in our giftings and to use them and exercise them for the common good. That's how an orchestra plays, isn't it? What, what, what happens if the wind section go on strike, have a bit of a sort of humph, you know, no one's paying enough attention to me in my notes. Well, the whole orchestra is, is, is uh, reduced and impoverished as a result. The sound is not what it should be. And God has called the church into being so that his manifest wisdom, Ephesians 3.10, should now be revealed, not just to Parsons Green in our instance, or to the world in terms of the universal church, but to the powers and principalities, to those in the heavenly realms. We're not going to be able to make a statement, a, a, a sort of coming soon sneak preview, unless we're looking to exhibit, if you like, a manifestation of the Spirit, to allow the Spirit to pour out of us in different gracings for the common good. Now, I'm going to run out of time, so let me just say um, a bit of homework maybe for, for, uh, for you if you want to take the sheets away. Um, and actually maybe a worthwhile study in the kind of, there's a little bit of a slack time before we pick up with the sermon series in the summer. Um, so there's uh, maybe one or two times when as a house group we'll, we'll meet together, if you're in a house group. Um, and we could maybe look a little bit more at these different gift lists that are on the, uh, the back of the sheet. Um, Ephesians 4, 11 and 12, and Romans 12, 4, oh, that's meant to say 6 to 8, not 4, 6 to 8. Um, in each of those texts, Paul stresses unity and diversity. In each of those texts, he stresses within the context of gifts for the common good, respecting the team. I think, it, again, just in, against the backdrop of what I've been trying to teach on Inside Out, it, it's, not, it, it's not that we get hung up on particular gifts. I don't think that these lists of gifts here are definitive, that that is all the gifts there are and there are no others. How, for example, if we were to look at some of the gifts in, in the Roman list, the gift of service, well, what does that look like? I mean, how can we prescribe what service looks like? It'll just look like different things in different contexts as the Spirit leads. Or encouragement, or leadership. That looks like a whole host of different things. Leadership as a spiritual gift, depending on the context and who it is you're leading and where you're leading them from and where you're hoping to lead them to. My leadership exercise here in St. Dionysus at this time is very different from the leadership I might exercise were I in another church. Um, and so I need to rely on the Spirit to empower me. So it's not sort of little gifts and have I got enough? Have I got three? I need one more, one more for a set. Come on, come on. It's not like we're sort of gathering, collecting trophies we're looking to the Spirit, uh, looking to the Lord as Spirit-filled people to exercise these and use these tools. They're not trophies for the mantelpiece. They're tools to build up the body, the common good. Um, I'm conscious, Trevor, right early on, asked the question, are all the gifts to be exhibited in and expressed or manifested in, in every church? Is that, have I reflected that right? And I think in answer to that question... I'd say um, that I don't think I can say yes and I don't think I can say no. Um, 
I think, just from experience, even in New Testament experience and, and church history, that there are very few churches that seem to manifest or express all the gifts all the time. But it seems clear to me from the reading of Scripture that Paul and the New Testament writers intended that the charismata, the expression of graces, would go on. It wasn't just for apostolic times. Um, there are uh, other people other than apostles who are working miracles. Philip, for example, on, uh, in Acts 8. And it's clear that Paul is addressing the church, not just the apostles. So uh, it's clear that there, there are times when the church will exercise a number of gifts. Um, the Spirit will be manifest in a number of different ways. If I can borrow an analogy from an image I've used before of the, the sailor. Um, you know, he's relying on the wind in order to sail his boat. Well, uh, at any one time, he may be required to use the kicking strap to support his feet as he leans out. He'll be required to, to move the tiller, to check the daggerboard, to look at the angle of the, the boom and the sail, to hold on to the main sheet. There'll be all sorts of different manifestations of sailing that he'll be involved in, particularly if there's a strong gust or a persistent gust. But at other times, the wind may drop and um, it may, he may lull completely and he just sits there. He doesn't need the kicking strap. He doesn't need to stra- hold the tiller. The sail's just sort of flapping away. He's relatively inactive. And I guess it's the wind that will determine how much of sailing the sailor does. And in a sense, as a body... I think we're called to be sailors. Some of us are good with the ropes. Some of us are good with the balance. Some of us are good with steering. Some of us are good with reading the wind. Some of us are good at calling ready about Leo and giving the commands. There are all sorts of different gifts, if you like. And it's, it's the wind which we rely on which will determine who's doing what at any one time. And I think so it is with the Spirit. There are times when we'll need leadership to come to the fore, times when we need service, times when we need the gift of encouragement, times when there's wisdom or revelation, times for prophetic utterance, as we, as we want to hear that the kind of nowness of God in a particular situation or issue. I want to show you um, two clips from a, uh, a film. I'm going to turn the tape off now because uh, This is where we say goodbye to you guys.